Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. It's it up to McCaffrey. There he goes. It's a C-Mac attack. This is Desmond Johnson on the Believe and Carolina Panthers podcast. Here on the Believe Podcast Network the number one podcast network for professionals. Do you believe? If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and rate the show on iTunes. We're available in your favorite directories, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. You can also find us at Believe.com and at Believe Podcast on Twitter. On today's episode of the Believe in Carolina Panthers podcast, award-winning journalist from the Greensboro News and Record, Ed Harden, joins the show. But first, let's get to know my new co-host, Tyrone Poole. Here's the opening drop. And welcome to the Believe in Carolina Panthers podcast brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network. You can find us on Spotify, uh, Google Play, iTunes. We're all over the place. I am your host, Desmond Johnson, and it is my honor to introduce to you, Panther fans, and those on the Believe Podcast Network, my new co-host going forward for the Believe in Panthers podcast. He is the first defensive player ever selected by the Carolina Panthers in 1995. He was the 22nd overall pick in the first round of the 1995 draft. He is a two-time Super Bowl winner. Welcome, cornerback, 13-year veteran, Tyrone Poole, to the Believe in Carolina Panthers podcast. What's going on, brother? Hey, Desmond, where's the crowd? I need the crowd to say poo. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's just a little chill down my spot. I may even remember going back, back in the day, man. So, uh, yeah, definitely excited to, to bring you on board here as our, uh, my co-host going forward on the Believe in Carolina Panthers podcast. And uh, guys, we got a lot of cool stuff planned going forward. But first, in this opening drive for this week, I just wanted to let uh, fans, you know, get to know you a little bit better Tyrone those that have been there like me from day one uh throughout the entire 25 year history of the Panthers and those that have come on along the way as we've gone through different uh iterations of the team the Cam Newton era and the DeLome era before that uh that may not have been on board yet when you're with the franchise so so first off you came out of Fort Valley State in college what was it like going from Fort Valley State to a first round pick for a brand new NFL franchise that never suited up before, well, explain that 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 draft week going into that week. Did you know that the Panthers were looking at you uh, to draft you that high, or, or were you surprised when you were drafted in the first round? Well, I, I want to say this: uh, people first got to understand Fort Valley State. When we talk about Fort Valley State, we're talking about a Division Two, Division Two, not a D one, a Division Two HBCU. Uh, historical black college and the student population is probably about 3,500 if that. Oh, wow. So we're talking about the change from almost going from the rural to the urban. It's like you're going from one small setting to a big setting. So it was a real big dramatic drastic change for me and going from a skinny playbook where all we did was play man to man i got him you got him mm-hmm. wherever he goes uh, i go but when you get to the pros the book the playbook is the size of a, a dictionary probably two dictionaries so i say all that to say that it was strenuous for me mentally uh, when i got to the nfl and wow. physically Talent-wise, I was just as good as anybody, anybody that came from a D1, but it was the mental. Uh, but to answer your question, did I know I was going to be in the first round and did I, did I talk to the Panthers? I knew I was going to be in the first round when I left the Senior Bowl. I went to the Senior Bowl, went to the Combines, but it was after the Senior Bowl when you kind of start knowing where you're going to be drafted, if you're slotted to be a first-rounder, second-rounder. And I was slotted to be a first-rounder, middle to late-round pick. But I never talked to Carolina. I never talked to Carolina, never talked to Bill Polian, never talked to Dom Capers at the Combines or at the Senior Bowl. I I went back to Fort Valley with probably – 31 other teams paraphernalia, but nobody from the Carolina Panthers. And all of a sudden, <laughs> uh, I'm sitting around draft 
here in Atlanta and my agent comes and grabs me and I go from taking pictures with the family and uh, all my friends from Fort Valley and my hometown and I get on the phone and it's Bill Polian. And the first question Bill asked me was, do you want to be a Carolina Panther? How does it feel to be a Carolina Panther? And I said, wow. <laughs> I'm like, what am I supposed to say? Right. No. <laughs> I'm like, I would love to be a Carolina Panther. <laughs> now, you, you, now, if I remember correctly, the Panthers traded up to that that uh, position to draft you. So they must have really thought highly of you um, from from everything. But it seems like that's the way it kind of goes in the NFL. That, that, that one team that did not contact you, they're the ones that are kind of coveting you more than everybody else. Um, so that, that's just awesome that uh, you were able to go from Fort Valley State to start and cornerback for the Carolina Panthers. Uh, former Panther cornerback Tyrone Poole, our new co-host on the Believe in Carolina Panthers yes. podcast, on with us now on the opening drive. Now, Tyrone, you you guys had some success super early. In 96, you know, the, the Panthers made it all the way to the NFC Championship game, losing to Brett Favre and the, the Green Bay Packers on the road. Talk about those first three years in the league when you were in Charlotte. You you know, guys that uh, you, you kind of shocked the league getting there in such a quick time, just the second year of the franchise's existence. Who who were some of the leaders on that team that you looked up to as a young player in Carolina? Well, the thing about that Carolina team, uh, and I want to talk about that 95, That that is the most magical moment out of all the years of me being in Carolina. Uh, other than one game away from the Super Bowl, that 95 season was the the most uh, – you can't forget it. It's the most magical, uh, the one that would always stick with me memory-wise because it was so many firsts, mm-hmm. firsts, firsts that happened, not only as an individual as a but as a team. But the leaders, I think everyone was a veteran. The Panthers and the Jacksonville Jaguars came in in the same year, 95. Jacksonville wanted to go the route of younger players. And the Panthers, uh, Mr. Richardson, Dom Capers, Bill Polian, Mike McCormick, they wanted to go the route of veterans and adding in. Now, both franchises had success. So that's just a note to anyone who's starting a team or if your team right now across the NFL, all 31 other teams or 32 teams how about the Panthers. If your team is down, keep hope because if you bring in the right people and you know what type of team you're trying to build, then you will build success. But again, the Panthers, we had a lot of veteran leadership from uh, Frank Wright, you know, who's now the head coach with the Indianapolis Colts. Uh, all the way down to Steve Lofton, who was a cornerback, uh, to Bubba McDowell, uh, Gerald Williams. Uh, you know, we had Greg Craig and uh, Matt Campbell. We had a lot of guys on that team that I remember that were leaders. And it, it was just such a magical moment. You know, we start three and two. Uh, as I go back and go down memory lane, and I'm pretty sure a lot of Panther fans are going to enjoy this memory trip. But when we first started out, Desmond, we were three and two in preseason. So mm-hmm. automatically, you know, it's hype. You know, we went out first ever game against Jacksonville in the Hall of Fame game and we finished three and two. So the season looks promising. And then. We start the season and we go 0-5. We lose five straight. So I guess it kind of brought everybody back to reality. Like, okay, hold on. These guys are an expansion team. But then we did something special and we went and won four straight games. And in those four straight games, and I think a lot of Panther fans remember this one, we beat the defending champions, the 49ers, in their hometown. So when you talk about veteran leadership, you know, to go and beat someone, I've been a champion. So I know what the expectations are when you are the defending champions and you play with a a chip on your shoulder. You play with the mindset that you are the best. And I'm pretty sure when the 49ers looked at us they're like hey we're champions these guys are upstarts you know it's like playing against your little brother you're like come on you're not gonna beat me but hey we went out there hit them in the mouth and tim mccaya returned a a crucial um uh thing was a a fumble uh for uh, a a touchdown or interception for a touchdown and you know the offense 
ball control, defense played hard, and we ended up beating the 49ers. And it was a great, magical 95 season. Our first win in uh, team history, regular season, was in Clemson. Uh, we beat the Jets. And I'll say this, my last component, I know you have a ton of questions. I got a ton of things that I want to talk about. I'm just so happy to be <laughs> able to come back into the Carolinas and talk football, past, present, the future. But I, I just want to give a shout out to all the Panther fans. I'm like, we did something again, the first that has never been done before. We were five and three. Five and three, our first existence in the NFL, and we were five and three at home. I'm like, not wow. playing in Carolina Stadium, playing in Bank of America Stadium, uh, Alltel Stadium, whatever you want to call it during the time. The name has changed so many times on that stadium. Uh, but the fans would drive from all over the Carolinas to come to Clemson to watch us play and we were five and three. So the, the Carolina fans, they followed us back in 95 and they're following the team now. So Carolina loves their Carolina Panthers, the fans, the Carolinians, they love their football. That we do. And I have a confession to make because uh, I grew up here in central North Carolina uh, here in Kernersville. It's kind of in the, well, not kind of, it's in the triad directly in between Greensboro, High Point and Winston-Salem. So I'm almost at a dead center of the state. And, uh, I have to admit, I had two other teams before the Panthers existed. Like this, <laughs> this, this area was Redskin country before the Panthers yes. were here. You know, like the one o'clock game was the Redskins every Sunday. So, mm -hmm. you know, I grew up with, uh, you know, friends with that silky red Redskin jacket and, you know, the <laughs> hogs and Mark Rippon and all that stuff. So I, you know, uh -huh. I grew up as a Redskin fan into the eighties as I was beginning to understand football better. Um, Bef right around the beginning of the 90s, early 90s, maybe 89, 90, I switched from Washington to Dallas uh, because yeah. I, was a, I was a Miami uh, a Miami Hurricanes fan. So I love Michael yes. Irvin. Jimmy Johnson was coming in. Uh -huh. I saw what they were building. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go with the young upstarts here and, and watch them and see what they do. So early part of the 90s, I was a Cowboys guy. Loved Emmitt Smith. Uh, that, that whole crew. Loved them all. And then... Uh, I tell people all the time because they're always like, oh, man, you're jumping around from team to team. I'm like, I was literally, I mean, in 1990, I was like 12. <laughs> 13, uh -huh. you know, I'm still trying to figure out who I want who I want that team to be. Now, in 95, though, I'm a junior in high school. We get the Carolina Panthers. I finally have a home team to root for. Left Dallas behind. Never looked back. Been diehard Carolina Panthers uh, from day one. So um, I'm, I'm geeked. I'm excited to have you on because you're you're in that first draft class and i remember that 95 season and just being almost in awe that the team was able to yeah. pull out wins in that first inaugural season that second yes. season though in 96 i don't think anyone expected uh mm. really both the expansion teams had success that year because jacksonville yes. made it to the afc championship game yes. and you guys just barely missed seeing each other in the super bowl just two years after the teams were uh built which to me is just still insanity that and it seems like the NFL is the only league where you can turn it around pretty quick. I know people have such a uh, an idea of what the Panthers might be this year because they're basically restripping the roster down and getting everything together. It only took the Rams like two years with Sean McVay to get to the Super Bowl. Like, you know, it really doesn't take that long if the players buy into the system and and the system is good. Did you got did you yeah. get a sense that you guys were buying into the system uh, early on with Dom Capers? and what they were trying to do, especially on the defensive side? Because you guys were pretty well known defensively by the time 96 rolled around with guys like yourself and Sam Mills, Lamar Lathan, Kevin Green. I mean, you, you had some names on that defense. Did you start yes. to get a sense that you guys were starting to click on a level that you weren't the previous year in 95? Yeah, I think also, to, adding on to what you're saying, to answer your question – you have to have a mindset. You have a, you have to have, if you're going to win, if you're going to turn it around, you have to establish a system. You have to establish what your team, what your identity is going to be. And Dom Capers coming from the Pittsburgh Steelers. So give Jerry Richardson and Mike McCormick kudos for picking that first coach that was going to bring an identity to the Carolinas, 
and Dom Capers coming from the Pittsburgh Steelers. You know what the Steelers were all about. They have that same philosophy from the 70s. They play with it now in this day and age. So he brought that tough nose defense and that tough nose offense. And that's kind of like what we had as well. We had a running game, control the ball offense, and we had a defense that was going to put pressure on your quarterback, running that 3-4. And the identity, we knew who we were, and we all bought into it. I call it soot, soot. That's my acronym. And this is for anybody who's listening that wants to build a sporting team, build our, our greatness in corporate America. I call it soot. Everyone has to speak the same language understand the same way and think the same way. And if you can get people to buy in through speaking, understanding and thinking, then you will turn your franchise around as soon as you have an opportunity to get everybody to, to play together. So uh, definitely everybody bought in to what Dom Capers brought from Pittsburgh to the Carolinas. I like that, Tyrone. Suit. I, I like that. I'm going to start using that. Go <laughs> ahead. Go ahead. That yeah, I'm, I'm going <laughs> to take that one. That's a good one. So now uh, with, with, with me right now, co-host Tyrone Poole here of the Believe in Carolina Panthers podcast, 13-year NFL vet, and the first defensive player ever selected by the Carolina Panthers in 1995 in the first round, pick number 22. Now, of course, uh, Tyrone, you didn't spend the entire 13 years here in Carolina. Later on in your career, you signed on. Uh, with the Patriots uh, in 2003. Ironically, you made it that year to your first Super Bowl, but it was versus the team that drafted you in the Carolina Panthers. Describe what that felt like, knowing you were going into that game and playing that game uh, against the team that drafted you. And, and and I can hear in your voice how much love you have for Charlotte in this area and the Panthers franchise in general yes. uh, for starting your career. What were the emotions mm -hmm. going into that uh, that Super Bowl that many people consider a top five Super Bowl of all time in terms of uh, the excitement and the action, especially in the second and the fourth quarter uh, with Brady and DeLome uh, dueling back and forth. What was it like to, to face the team that drafted you in the biggest game of your career? Yeah. And I, what comes to my mind is full circle, not only full circle from the standpoint of talking Carolina Panther football, my rookie year, and then 20 some odd years later, I'm coming back talking Carolina Panther football again. So that's full circle as far as the broadcasting. The full circle when it comes to football, in 1995, again, Jerry Richardson stood up in front of the team, our very first meeting as a team, and he addressed the team. He says, I have a 10-year plan to get the Carolina Panthers into the Super Bowl. Now, if you go from 1995 to 2003, mm -hmm. he was pretty much on point. Now, myself, even though I was not on as a player, active player on that team that made it to Super Bowl 38, I was playing in the same on the same field in the same game. So to me, it's like I did live to see what Jerry Richardson had told us that first team meeting, the plans that he had. But to see all the guys that I that were still there in Carolina that were as players or coaches, to see them, we all embraced uh, before the, see, uh, the, the game at midfield or towards the sideline, because uh, I would come out to punt return, uh, punt return specialists, they all came out before the, the team would come out. And that gives you an opportunity if you see someone that you know, you can go over, talk, whatever you do, wish them good luck. So that was my opportunity. Uh, Mr. Richardson was on the field and, uh, you know, some of the coaches on the field, the players. So we all embraced and said hello and went down memory lane, congratulating each one, wishing everybody health and prosperity during the game and then we went out there and did battle but uh it was awesome to come full circle to be there when it first started to see the fruition of what was once a dream to actually come to reality 
With us, uh, former cornerback Tyrone Poole, 13-year NFL veteran and new co-host of the Believe in Carolina Panthers podcast. I got to ask this question. It's the first time, your first appearance on the podcast. And I want to know personally, because I, I, I'm a very competitive person. Yes. Who was, the, who was the toughest wide receiver for you to cover in your whole career? You know, it's funny. If you, if you can name just one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know so many, man. You know, but Jerry Rice, I tell people Jerry Rice did everybody else. Everybody mm. else has different skills, but Jerry Rice was complete. I think what made him complete was the fact that he wasn't that fast and he wasn't that slow. And he was in the middle, but he played and ran his routes. He played hard. He ran hard. So that's why you would see him run by guys who are defensive backs that run four two. Even Deion Sanders, I think he's the greatest corner ever uh, to put on a pair of cleats, cover corner. Even Deion had trouble with Jerry Rice. Jerry Rice was just a hard competitor, and I think that would made him the best receiver, to, uh, the hardest receiver to cover. Yeah, I, yeah, I would imagine. I was thinking since you were in the same division with him, and you had to see him probably twice a year uh, at minimum, that he his name might pop up. And <laughs> you know, with Jerry, you know, yes. it was like he wasn't the fastest guy. He wasn't like the guy that could jump the highest or anything like that. But he had that game speed. You know what I mean? Like yes. where he could pull away from somebody in the game, and it was kind of deceiving at first. But I mean, <laughs> you know, you didn't expect him to have the burners, but he could catch something you know, a five yard yes. slant and turn it upfield and would not get called. You're just like, oh, man. Yeah. So, yeah, I could easily see Jerry being the one <laughs> being yes. there. Now, I, now, do you want to pick your head on thoughts on what uh, the NFL should do regarding the 2020 season here going forward in the future? But we're going to carry that over into our guest here. Come up here in just a bit from the Greensboro News and Record, award-winning columnist Ed Harden uh, will be joining the podcast. And I told Ed that uh, this was your first week coming on as a co-host. Yes. And uh, he he he, he uh, was like, oh, man, he hadn't talked to you in a minute. He said he was one of the first beat writers for the Carolina Panthers back in 95. So this is going to be fun for me because yes. uh, I super respect Ed Hart and what he does uh, here yes. uh, in the written world, especially. Uh, I want to pick his brain on what he's thinking because he's had some ideas in terms of what he's thinking, not just NFL, but college football might be in jeopardy as well as we go deeper into the summer, into July. So uh, we're going to bring Ed Harden on in just a bit. You're listening to the Believe in Carolina Panthers podcast. And welcome back to the Believe in Carolina Panthers podcast. I'm your host, Desmond Johnson, along with my co-host, the first defensive player ever selected in Carolina Panthers history, uh, 13-year veteran and two-time Super Bowl champion Tyrone Poole. On the line with us right now, he is an award-winning columnist for the Greensboro News and Record. You can find his work at greensboro.com. Ed Harden joins the Believe in Carolina Panthers podcast. What's going on, Ed? I'm doing great down here in North Carolina. How are you guys doing? Uh, doing doing good. great, Ed. Yeah, now now I didn't realize this. I should have because I, I know Ed pretty well. Uh, our paths have crossed multiple times. And from talking to Tyrone, Ed mentioned to me when we booked him for this episode that he was one of the original beat writers for the Carolina Panthers mm. back in 1995. So Ed and Tyrone, this is the first time the two of you guys have talked in how long now? Years? Uh, a generation. Yeah. <laughs> generation, exactly. <laughs> Take me back Over to those days. Years. Take me back mm. to those days when, uh, you know, the Panthers are fresh. It's, uh, you know, brand new team. Tyrone, you're a rookie. Ed, for all intents and purposes, you're a rookie, too. You guys are just kind of navigating the world of the NFL and the Carolinas for the first time. What, what was that like? Well, I mean, for, for the beat writers, it really started in 93 when the process began you know, trying to get the team in the first place. And I remember going to the NFL meetings in Chicago. I remember going to a Monday night football game in Chicago. We were really just trying to drum up support with a lot of the early movers and shakers and it was the biggest thing that ever happened in North Carolina. Mm. It's been as much fun as I've ever had in my life. Tyrone, you yeah. mentioned the same thing that, especially that '95 season, about how much, just how fun it was uh, for for all you guys involved with it. Yeah, that was a magical, magical year, uh, inaugural, the first of anything that would happen in Carolina. Like Ed said, if they could put up a statue. They could put up a statue of the first beat riders for the Carolina Panthers. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So people know the history. Uh, children, children from generation to generation would say, hey, my dad was a beat writer for the uh, Panthers. You see his name right here. But it was a first for everything. The first win, the, the first ticket sold, the first 
publication of an article on the Panthers. So it was 95 was just a magical year for everybody. Now, I, I love I hadn't had anyone nominate uh, Ed for to replace that statue until right now. So <laughs> you heard it here first from the Believe in Carolina Panthers podcast. Uh, all the line with Ed Harden from the Greensboro News and Record. You can follow him on Twitter at Ed underscore Harden. Uh, speaking of statues. Uh, so since you guys were there from the very beginning, the statue that was just taken down a couple of weeks ago, of former Panthers owner Jerry Richardson has uh it's been woven into the fabric of the story that's being told right now that we're living in in real life in terms of we're seeing a lot of things socially changing before our eyes. You guys were there from the very beginning. And Ed, like you said, you go back even further to 93, you know, the fight to get the Panthers here in North Carolina in the first place. What are your guys thoughts on Jerry Richardson in terms of does he deserve to be vilified the way he's been in some circles? Or do you still view him as a guy that, almost did the impossible by bringing the NFL to the Carolinas. Tyrone, you he was your employer, and Ed, you had to work in some capacity in the same circles with Mr. Richardson as he tried to build this NFL franchise. What, what are you guys' thoughts on, on Jerry today? I mean, I have a lot of mixed emotions, a lot of mixed feelings. Yes. Probably single-handedly brought this franchise to, to Charlotte. You have to give him credit. Mm-hmm. The man came to our newspaper, sat down with our editors and me and just told us how how important it was for us to be part of the, the push to bring the Panthers. And we were made to feel like we were part of the team. Mm-hmm. Southern gentlemen then, we thought, you know, that all Southern gentlemen were like that. But you know, everything changed all of a sudden a couple of years ago. And I, I, for one, think that statue had to come down. Tyron, what were your thoughts on, the, and- on that statue of Jerry Richardson? <laughs> Yeah, that's I'm glad I'm glad that you brought this back up, Desmond, uh, because myself, you know, being there, uh, like I told you in the beginning, when I got there, Jerry Richardson addressing the team, his game plan for a Super Bowl. And I think we all should do this first. We've all fallen short. And I know we live in a society where everyone's scared of their own shadow, but there are some things that, yes, from the past that does not need to be existing in the future. But at the same time, you don't need to forget about the good things of the past. So I agree that there are certain moments that, okay, we got to get rid of this. We got to get rid of the past. We got to stop this leak. But at the same time, you can't throw the baby out with the water. So I think he Mr. Richardson played a very intricate part of bringing the franchise that people now go buy tickets for, uh, the paraphernalia that fans go buy. Someone had to start that. So I don't think you should totally erase history. It's just like our people or anybody, whether you're uh, Asian, Hispanic, or you don't want to erase anyone's history. Because now those in the future won't remember who started everything. So me personally, I think what they should do, instead of putting a statue there, I think they should put a big whatever plaque with all of everyone who was on that first inaugural 95 team, Hmm. even the beat writers, we're going to put Ed in there too. Anyone that covered the Panthers in 1995, because there, if you want to talk about leaving a legacy that 20, 30 years from now, people can always come back. And plus it's going to be at the front gate. So everybody gets an opportunity to see who were the players, who were the coaches, who were the important people that got the information out to the world to let them know that Carolina had a team. Because I remember one time they used to say it was the Charlotte Panthers. Yeah. (laughs) But then, hey, everybody understanding like Ed, continue to write his papers is the Carolina Panthers, the Carolina Panthers. So I think instead of putting a human statue, not a player, not a individual, but putting a big plaque that shows the first inaugural season, that team 
And also, you're going to have to put Jerry Richardson's name up there, Mike McCormick's name, Bill Polian's name, Dom Caper's name, all of the coaches, all the players. Again, that is history. And that there, if you can't agree with that, then you're basically doing it for some other reason why you want a plaque out there to memorize or commemorize history. I like that. So almost like a wall of honor of some sort, like at the front. Uh, that would have yes. like the name be like etched in. I like that idea. Now, yeah. I, we have no idea what the Panthers are going to do, if anything, with it. I'd be happy with them just leaving the two gigantic Panthers that were sitting out there, and and that's it. But I, li- I like that idea, Tyron. That sounds pretty good. Now, in terms of going forward uh, into 2020, uh, the craziest year ever, <laughs> we um, – <laughs> Roger Goodell, the commissioner of NFL, earlier this morning actually said uh, the league is prepared to, quote, open uh, training camps on time, players reporting no later than July 28th. Uh, Fellas, where are we? Because the NFL isn't really showing any signs of slowing down. They hadn't from the very beginning, other than adapting the way they did the NFL draft. And to be honest, I kind of like this format better, the way they did the draft this year than the normal format. It felt more cohesive. Uh, and more intimate so I, I like i hope they continue to do that but that's really the only thing they've altered everything else has relatively stayed the same and they don't really show any signs of slowing down ed what does your gut tell you right now june 26 about playing the 2020 season because i'm starting to have some some thoughts creep in my head and i know if i'm having those thoughts creep in my head i'm about 95 percent positive these thoughts have crept into yours so where do you think we stand right now? Do you honestly feel like we're going to get a full NFL season this year? I mean, I think the voice of, of reason on this and maybe maybe even the most important voice out there is, is, of, is coming from J.C. Tratter, the head of the Players Union, who put out a tweet, I think last week he said to the other players, don't listen to the league. Don't listen to what they're saying. Don't listen to what your team is telling you. Listen to me. And before you make any decisions, come to me. So I think we're still there's still a confrontation coming here between the players union and the league itself. Now the league can tell the teams to do what anything it wants and they have to do it. But the players, they the players still have a union, a strong one, and they really haven't come out yet to tell them to tell exactly what they think. And I suspect I suspect it's what you're feeling that this is not going to happen the way the NFL wants it to happen. I mean, we're kind of running out of runway, aren't we? I mean, it feels like they're kind of – they just don't want to say it, but everybody in the room knows, like, okay, it doesn't – I don't think this is going to happen. And then they canceled the Hall of Fame game yesterday, uh, which is technically kind of a throwaway preseason game. It's that fifth, Mm. you know, beginning game. Uh, But they canceled the Hall of Fame proceedings also in Canton. Um, So that was the first blow in terms of – the league acknowledging, okay, there's something out there bigger than us that's going to cause us to change the trajectory of our train the way it normally does. Now, Dr. Anthony Fauci uh, floated the notion that football would need to be played in a bubble, like the, what the, the NBA is going to attempt to do here uh, in Florida, and that that might be in jeopardy now with the new numbers that came out today. Do, do you got do either one of you guys even think that would work, the NFL in a bubble? Because you're not talking about taking a team of, you know, 30, 40 people there. You're talking about taking, what, a couple hundred per team to someplace and then confining them in a space for, what, four months? Like, is that even possible? I don't see how they can do it. I really don't. I mean, the, the chief medical officer, Alan Sills, said just yesterday that, you know, testing is not enough. You're literally going to have to figure out how to create a bubble for what? Staff, management, front office? Yeah people trainers interns you know players wives families it's like that's a big old bubble right there and city <laughs> i mean that's literally a city like i mean i mean what do we i mean we're talking what that's there what is was it 30 30 plus teams a couple hundred per team i mean you're talking a good what maybe 4000 plus yeah. people that you're having to like yeah. keep away from everything like i just don't understand how that's even See, even if they did like multiple bubbles, like they did a north, the west, the south, and east. And I was trying to go through it, like, okay, where would be the places that could actually do this? So, like in the west, maybe like Las Vegas with the new stadium there. Maybe you can kind of configure something and do western teams out there. In the south, ah, there's really not a safe place <laughs> right now mm-hmm. in the south where they can come and do this. They thought it was Florida, but Florida's turned into like the hot spot right mm-hmm. now. Uh, up north. I don't know, maybe Detroit or something, because it's got to be kind of like a dome type thing. Yeah. And you got to have the the ability to have the stuff around 
where all these people are going to be to 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 compensate for it and yeah. i don't i don't know if that's possible um now, on the line with us, Ed Harden from the Greensboro News and Record award-winning uh, sports columnist. Now, Ed, I, I very much value your opinion in terms of college football as well, and that's a totally different beast. It sounds like college football is going to come down to individual conferences just kind of figuring out what they can and can't do. Yeah, yeah, and even the teams within it. I mean, you take the ACC, mm-hmm. you're talking about 10 states. Right. There's, you know, right there, you can't do it. I mean, yeah do it uniform across the board. It's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. You're starting to get a lot of positive results from testing out of places like Clemson and LSU. I mean, block. Yeah. Like, I mean, it just, it just says you can't do this. It's all, you know, you're going to bring teams back, but you're not going to let the students come back. I mean, that just mm-hmm. in the face of reason. It's almost like they're going to use these kids as guinea pigs. Yes. Just yes. get there and, and let's see what happens. You know, I, I just don't think, I don't see how the governor of North Carolina would allow it, but we'll see. See, And that's what I was thinking, too, that it would come down to because really, if we're going to be honest here, at this point, it feels like the feds have basically abandoned like whatever they're going to try to do with it. And they're just hoping it burns out. So it's really become more of a state issue. And that's a huge problem because you can't defeat this state by state. You know, people cross state lines every day. So you can't have it where. You know, Virginia's got one set of rules, and then you come into North Carolina, and it's a totally different set of rules. And then South Carolina's got wide open everything, so it's like there's no way to really truly do it in that manner, like you were saying, Ed. But do, do you do you feel like uh, between the two, which one's more likely to be played, NFL or college football in 2020? Well, I think in the NFL because it's mm-hmm. you know, it's a profession. You know, they can force these these franchises to play as long as they get the players to, to align with them. Um, you know, the, the college players are becoming empowered now. They're, they're starting to, to rise up even without a union. You know, individuals are starting to, to say, we want this, we want that. And I think that'll be the biggest issue of all is once it gets close, and we're talking a few weeks here too, where you're starting to invite, you're starting to invite college athletes back on the campus where there are no kids no students, I think it's going to it's become very obvious to them that they're being used here. And I think you're going to yeah. get some backlash. No, yeah. go ahead, Tyron. Yeah, uh, question uh, for both of you guys and myself. Now, when we do talk about sports, talking about football right now, the thought has to be broader. And when I say broader, you got small schools, how is this going to impact small schools, public schools, private schools? Okay, even when you talk about high school, all the way down to high schools, you know, you got public schools, you got private schools. So if one school has the capability, say the SEC, ACC, they have probably the capabilities of whatever testing that needs to be done. They had finances to hopefully put their players in a safe position. But what about these small schools? What are you guys' thoughts about the small schools? How can they – do they have to shut their doors? And if they shut their doors, we all know that sports does generate a lot of income for a lot of people, not only athletes and schools, but people. So with these small schools, how does this affect them? We all know about what the big schools are going to do, but what about the small schools? How can they keep their head above water? I mean, you're starting to see a lot of these schools eliminate sports. Mm. Kind of their first response, let's get rid of the girls' tennis team or something. So that's the first response. You're going to try and curtail the actual money they're spending. But but you're right. It has more to do with the, just the school. It's the it's the community around it. It's, you know, you talk about small schools. Some of these Some of these college towns are dependent entirely on the football team. Mm that's generated from that football team and that stadium in that tiny little town in the South, that's everything to them. So, you know, th- there are so many moving parts to this. I, I just think that we're going to start up and some schools aren't going to be there to start. I just think there's no way in the world they're going to get a hundred and however many division one schools to start on the same day and everybody play a full schedule. I don't yeah. see that. Especially like in the South, because of co- with college football, of course, it's more popular in the South than anywhere else. And that's the hotbed right now. Um, 
piggybacking off of what you were saying, Ed, not even just the small schools. Like, I think I saw something earlier this week that Tuscaloosa, they're basically saying that if there's no football this year, they're going to lose like billions of dollars in yeah. revenue like for not just the, the gate of people coming in to watch those games, but the, the restaurants, the bars, the hotels, the things that are around that stadium that hosts six games a season. It was like $2 billion or something crazy, some crazy number like that that the city would lose if it's not there. So, yeah, you're talking about affecting not just school programs, but like livelihoods of regular everyday Americans that depend on sports to to pay their bills. So it's an interesting um, situation. And we're getting like I said, we're running out of runway. Like we're getting to the point where they're going to have to make a decision here. I would imagine here soon uh, for me, I'm intimately involved with it because I actually broadcast high school football here uh, in the area in the fall and we're looking at it like i'm talking to high school coaches around here and they don't know like they haven't been able to talk to their kids face to face in three months four months so like you know it's crazy that no one seems to know but everyone knows you know like in the back of their head everyone's kind of like i don't think this is going to happen but no one wants to say it so i just wanted to put that out there because I know with you, you, you add, you're pretty blunt in your assessments of what's going on <laughs> and, you know, what's happening. Like, you don't really, uh, you know, tippy toe around it. And I, I knew as we were getting closer to July, this question is going to start popping up in the media now. Like, are we playing football? Like, so that's going to start coming here in the next, really the next week or so. Yeah. Um, on the line with Ed Harden, award-winning columnist for the Greensboro News and Record. You can check out his work at greensboro.com. He's on the Believe in Carolina Panthers podcast with myself, Desmond Johnson, and uh, two-time Super Bowl winner Tyrone Poole. Um, I, Tyrone, this is actually kind of a question for you, being a former yes. player. Uh, I did see a workup of, I think it was like a Bears helmet or something. It had like a, a plastic visor on it for the eyes and some kind of contraption across the, the, the mouth guard that would act as a filter. Uh, I, I do think back. <laughs> I, I saw a picture from like the 1920s when Spanish flu was going around. And it was a picture of a, like a Notre Dame football game. And everyone in the stands was wearing a mask and the players were wearing masks. But back then, you know, they didn't have the arm guard. So it's like the leather helmet and they're wearing like a surgical mask and they're playing football. And they, and they did that through that, that time, apparently. How hard would it be today in NFL for a player to wear a mask or some sort of contraption to prevent spread? And is that a, a last ditch effort if, that, if something like that happens? No, you know, I think that can be done, but I think it has to go back to what is being used. Now, if you're talking about putting a visor, we see players playing with visors all the time. And as long as it's in a safe place, you can't have anything that comes over the bar or covers up the bar because it with contact. And if you look at a lot of face masks, sometimes even the bar, the paint is chipped off of the of the bar itself. So if you put anything on the outside, it will shatter and that could create even more danger for the athlete. Now, what I think they should do, because we do do this as players. Now, during the wintertime, we put these stockings or these face masks that we pull over our head and it covers up the nose and the mouth. Well. You don't want to quite don't want to use those during the summertime because in the summertime you want to have the top of your head open because that's where your heat escapes. So you want to be able to cool down. But during the wintertime, you want to have that hat on so you can keep the heat in. So I think if they could develop, which I know they have, take the uh, mask that you actually pull from your neck up. Uh, you know, sometimes people oh, use them for right. hunting and things yep. like that. So that way it keeps the top of your head able to release heat. And also I thought about, hey, go to the area Dickerson. You know, everybody get goggles, put goggles hmm. on and that would protect your eyes. So now you can pull up the mask that comes up and it covers your nose. And if they want to add another layer of whatever filter in there to help with the breathing and to diminish the amount of particles that someone gives away or embraces or inhales, then I think that would be my outfit uh, for helping the situation, being with the gloves. Everybody pretty much wears gloves. So on the sideline, back in the day, I think they used to use stick them or whatever to get that <laughs> grippiness. Wait, instead of having stick them, 
have a whole can of Lysol over there. So every time the player come off, you spray your gloves down. So, you know, so it's all about prevent, preventative measures. But that is what I would say. Now, now you can player. now all everything you just said, Tyrone, I think could easily be done in the NFL because they've got the money to, to outfit everyone with. But going on Ed's point from earlier, how can smaller schools uh, do this? Like, say, a, mm-hmm. uh, like a uh, Winston-Salem State or even a North Carolina A&T, who, they're not working with the same budget as a University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Mm-hmm. Ed, do you think that if if some of these larger conferences start playing, that they're going to have to resort to that type of uh, protection for the player as well? And really, honestly, the coaching staffs too. If they're all down there in the same you know area, you can't socially distance on a, a football field sideline. So I would assume everyone on the sideline would have to be wearing the same type of stuff, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, when, once you get into the, the financial part of it, one of the discussions that are, is going on right now is like, how, how can we test these players daily or weekly or however they want to do it when the communities around them aren't even having the, the testing capabilities? Like, are you going to allow this football team to take up all the tests? Can we even afford to get as many tests as we're going to need? And that's college. What about high school? Some yeah. parents are going to have, have to step in on this too, especially for the high schools. It feels I, like we're barreling towards a, a gigantic mess. <laughs> yeah. What was that, Tyrone? No, I, I, I agree with everything. I think we all are saying, pulling some, some truth uh, about the pandemic and it's affecting everyone. We may even have to go to the point where I had a discussion with uh, someone talking about virtual athletes, virtual football we may have to just let teams whether small school big schools play each other from their dorm rooms or from their stadiums oh, no. virtual <laughs> athletes you no. know so no 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 <laughs> hey, people no, are tuning not, in no. people are tuning in to that type of stuff now oh, don't get it God. don't get I, it small now <laughs> but it's only it. it's only for a short time though i do want to give a shout out to nascar um because they have they have kind of become the guinea pigs of what can and can't work with all of this. And they were doing iRacing and somehow drawing 2 million viewers for, for that kind of stuff. And now, because I do a, a NASCAR podcast weekly also, and I get a chance to talk to these drivers. And they're, they're, it, it's weird for them because they said, you know, obviously there's no fans in the stands or anything like that. But, you know, we really can't hear that anyway in a car. So that part doesn't really bother them. But it does bother me as a viewer to not have fans there. I, I think I took audience participation for granted uh, until this happened um the thing the event actually the event that really made me realize that you have to kind of have fans there for the total experience was wrestlemania like i watched wrestlemania back in march and this was after they had to they were going to do it in tampa eighty thousand people raymond jane stadium obviously they couldn't do that uh it was like the first week of april so they moved it to the performance center up in connecticut no fans and put it over two nights and it was like they were stretching out a slow, painful death over two nights because you're watching a wrestling match with no fans in attendance. And you're just you can hear the conversations in the ring and you, you're hearing things you're not supposed to hear. Do you guys are you even interested in watching football in any capacity without fans? Well, I, I'll say this you know, real quick. and I know Ed has a lot to say about this as well. Baseball, I definitely believe the fans are very important because you got guys sitting just the, the pace of baseball. You got the pitcher throwing to a catcher and you got a batter and the pitcher can throw about five balls before any action goes on. So anyone, anyone sitting in the dugout, there's a chance that you could become like lost as a player, like forget where you are. But football, I definitely think you could play the game without the fans as a player, because when I was playing, I was so focused on my opponent. And when you are a backup or someone who could get into the game, as they would say, you're only a play away from being on that field. So as players on the sideline, you're focused. 
a basketball, I think maybe because even the bench, you're still focused on what's going on on the court and you're really not focused on what's happening in the stands. But baseball, I think the fans drive it, like you say, racing, auto, uh, uh, maybe not auto racing, but the WrestleMania, things like that where the fans are really involved. But football, basketball, I think you can kind of get away with the fans not being there. Ed, your thoughts? Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And, and just personally, I, I covered the race in Martinsville. And there were only four of us in the press box. So, Oh, wow. <laughs> That's another thing you got to think of. Nope, not going to be a bunch of sports writers hanging around either. So. Yeah, I, mean, I, was, I was wondering about that. It's eerie more than anything else. You know, you just, it's just an odd feeling. It's kind of a surreal atmosphere. But, I, you know, if, if they play football without fans and they've got microphones on the field, Man, you're going to hear some stuff. Ooh, I don't know if they can do that. Isn't that where they have that, what, what is it, three-second delay, five-second delay? Yeah. <laughs> the whole thing is going to be laid out. I kind of agree in terms of like uh, – I think me personally, I don't know how it felt. I guess I'd have to see it to to, to really know. I, with football, I think it'd be kind of jarring to not have the, the roar of the crowd. It's kind of just a part of the fabric of watching a game because it's – especially if it's like a great game and it's two good teams, that roar is nonstop. It's just kind of going through the whole game. So it just becomes part of the broadcast. So to take it out is super jarring. Now, basketball, I feel like basketball can do this without a crowd. The, those guys – they're used to playing AAU tournaments at eight in the morning, three games a day, couple people in the stand. Like they're they can play basketball without people in the stands, and I can watch basketball without a fan noise. Like I'm used to that. Baseball, you you were right, Tyrone, in terms of you know there's lulls, you know where you're getting certain pitches and things like that, where you can get by without fans. But it feels like football's kind of almost like soccer. It's continuous, so it's like you have to. Yeah, they're stopping every you know every play, but it's it's going for three and a half hours. I feel like you almost have to have some sort of noise, or you're going to start hearing stuff. To Ed's point, that maybe we weren't supposed to hear <laughs> stuff on the field that's going on that maybe we weren't supposed to know all this as fans. So I don't know. I was just very interested in that take from you guys here. Uh, Ed Harden on the line with us from the uh, Greensboro News and Record award-winning columnist. Follow him on Twitter at Ed underscore Harden. Uh, to get the latest news, opinion, updates on everything going on with this. Uh, Ed, I know we would love to have you back throughout the season. If yes. we actually have a season um, <laughs> going into this, we'd love to bring you back on. Just say the word. I've enjoyed it, guys. All right. Fantastic. Yes, Ed. And we uh, got to talk, Ed. We got to catch up ourselves now. It's been a long <laughs> time, but we got to catch up. Maybe we'll, news, maybe we'll use the next episode to catch up. Sounds good, buddy. Yeah, definitely. I'm waiting for the day where uh, me and Tyrone can come into a press room or something down at uh, BOA, run into Ed. I hear they got a fantastic ice cream machine down there, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll have at it for sure. Sounds good, guys. All right. You guys have been listening to the Believe in Carolina Panthers podcast. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.